Hi, welcome to the ESI What's Next podcast. I'm your host, Alex Feldman, and I'm taking you on a journey to learn about the exciting student entrepreneurs coming out of the ESI program. In the final part of our minister mini-series, Entrepreneurship Beyond Stigma, we're sitting down with Cindy Lee Alves, founder of the Ascension Institute and host of Sex on Shuffle podcast to learn her story and reflect on the first three parts of the series. Hopefully this will help us understand which lessons from the industry that we can apply to society at large. I wonder how relationships can improve through more transparent conversations around sex. Hi, Cindy, thank you for joining us today. Before we get started, can you let the audience know a little bit about yourself? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, whenever this is coming out, it's hump day for me today. So I'm saying happy hump day to you. Uh, but yes, my name is Cindy Lee. My pronouns are they or she. Uh, I'm a sexologist primarily. So a lot of my work is around sex and sex education, uh, focusing on uh, folks who are oppressed. So the global majority, but uh, in my experience of living in the United States, uh, focusing on folks of um, different system impacted identities. This has been um, a dream of mine since I was a young person. I was very adamant on being a sexologist, even though I didn't know what it was. And now I'm here. <laughs> Wait, can, I, can I ask, like, how did that how did that start? If you if this became something you always knew you wanted to do, even though you didn't even know what it, it was like. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of it, you know, I joke about it on, on when I speak and on my website. A lot of it, I think AOL dial up. Uh, but I also uh, think the lack of restriction, right? I really was this rebellious, curious person. And I really thought if I was asking questions to trusted adults or people who were like my teachers, for example, and I was asking them in a way that it was out of um, knowledge, I was always seen as, oh, you're being a, a wise aleck, right? Like you're just trying to get a rise out of us. Uh, so I had to look up the information for myself and for other young people like me who were trying to look for a space and a place that you know, there was minimal shame, lots of information. We were going through feelings about our bodies and had no understanding of it. At least my experience that we, I didn't have a lot of sex education aside from maybe like a marking period of health and very much, you know, old school fear tactics. Here are these scary pictures of vulvas and penises. <laughs> Don't have sex, right? So that came from that. The only frame of reference I had was Dr. Ruth, even though I wasn't 100% clear of what that was. And that had me go down a rabbit hole of what does it look like to uh, venture off into sex and sexuality. So all my uh, higher education tried to find a way to get to that. And with my experience, a lot of it was social sciences and then went into uh, education. Why do you think, I'm kind of touching on something you mentioned, why do you think that, let's say when, let's say concerning the topic of sex, when people actually show kind of an intellectual curiosity, it's met with kind of a, oh, you're trying to be disruptive. Mm. Or you're trying to, to, I don't know, be a clown or, or whatever. Why, why do you think that that's how people kind of react to, to that kind of search? Sure. I think a lot of it is a nice uh, 
mix of bias and and shame, right? Like our our own sexual shame and guilt, but also the biases we have either around young people, uh, young people of color, right? Re regardless of what came out of that, it always came from a place of, to me, it almost felt like activated, like it's okay to not know. And I think that showed up in how I educate now because being an expert in something does not mean that you have to know all it has to be you have to be open right to be willing to take risks to keep that learning environment thriving um but we at least for me you know pre-internet or like when the internet was budding i had to look it up right i had card <laughs> catalogs i was in the library a lot because that's who was my caretaker at the time, right? Like my mother would be working and library was the safest place that you can go to. And that's where I ventured off in my rabbit holes, right? The things that I wasn't allowed to talk about, but I still was thirsty for the information. Um, and it's still, it's so interesting because so often the things that I heard when I was a young person are the things that I still hear now as being the roadblocks for people learning either about their own bodies, let alone something specific to like a sexual behavior. Because to me, sexuality is so interdisciplinary and connected to so many things that everything to me is related to sexuality, is related to our overall wellness. I, I want to touch on something that you, you mentioned, which I thought was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. You mentioned sort of when, when you were going through this, this, let's say, period of curiosity and discovery in the space, you had to go to, to libraries and, and, and pick these books out. And, and now let's say a lot of people are going to the, the internet. Let's say, how would you compare that experience, let's say for, for, for you at your time compared to someone now? And do, and do you think it's better or worse? I don't know, what are some of the, the benefits of, let's say the way that you had to do it compared to, to now and, and vice versa? I, I, I speak a lot about the both ends, so I'm always going to be in the very grayness of it. I think it has its ups and its downs because all my things were written um, by a particular writer, right, who had access to publishing versus the Internet is a lot more expansive, has a lot of opportunities to hear things from lived experience from folks who may not have access to academia or publishers or, you know, things of that nature, but we still get the information. And now we have to sift through so much information. There's so many opportunities for uh, folks' biases to show up or for harm to occur or for li literally, right? Like medically inaccurate information can, that could put us at risk, right? So I think that's why it's so important not only to do your due diligence around research and knowledge retention, but also be, to be open to the type of research we're looking at and being mindful of who is this research speaking to, right? A lot of my courses, even when I was teaching specifically human sexuality courses at the university level, we always talked about media literacy. We always talked about questioning everything because so often we um, value a certain type of method and we say everybody that does that method or everybody that gives this kind of information is it must be right. Right. We have this confidence in it. When I think true researcher, true uh, being open and, and being wanting to know more information is to seek it out. Right. And to find out even outside of whatever our scope is. Um, so that we can look at it from a wider range and understand the different concepts that exist and different points of view. Um, is, is my biggest thing. So I think it's a, it, 
it's it's a both end, right? I love the internet. I love the access to information. And the same thing that tools can be used for good, we've always seen that tools can also, also be used for harm, right? The, the intent and the impact involved in it. It seems like, and I think about this a lot when I think about sort of the internet, it seems like a change from, let's say, when you were doing it, it was a little bit more of, let's say, that the skills you needed were much more about how do I find the limited bits of information wherever they might exist? Right. Whereas now it's a bit more of, there's way more information than you could ever imagine. Yeah. And and how can you figure out, let's say, which information is, I don't want to say necessarily good or bad, but but let's say either... A- Accurate and accurate is, it's, let's say, useful, not useful, mm-hmm. or, or, or how you relate to it, or you have to sort of, let's say, there's a lot of noise and very little signal is, I think, a, mm. one way of, of putting it. And I think it's just mm-hmm. a very different skill of, of whereas before it was, let's say, much more of the information was guarded. And so you had to figure out how to get through those walls and, and right. extract it. But now it's, information is abundant, but because of how abundant it is, you, you kind of have to figure out, okay, which of this information is actually useful, helpful gonna essentially I, I sort of see it as help me achieve whatever mm-hmm. it is I want to achieve mm-hmm. and what's sort of gonna either get in the way or distract me or or kind of lead me down the path that I, I don't want to go on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for sure and I think you know and I so men so much of what I learned stems from the folks that at least in my circles are like sexuality or sexological uh leaders right or icons and yet they still missed out on a lot of other nuances right and not to say that that's fault of theirs but there's a lot there's still gaps in the research especially if the research is not uh super inclusive because it's it's hard to be so like i understand and i love my quantitative researchers we need that right the ones focusing on physiological responses absolutely and I'm I'm glad that we're able to talk about other ways of mapping and archiving experiences to bring into that so that the researchers can kind of have a more holistic um, way of, of, of talking about this. And I think it's a lot, at least in my experience, very often folks want an answer, right? Even folks who just want, you know, what, I don't want to say just, but who are looking for like, spicing up their bedroom is that that old school term right or just getting the information um i feel like there's still not a one-way cookie cutter way to explain things so it's good to have all the information and the knowledge it's good to have that out there and have it exist the research is important it's crucial and once it gets out there, we don't re- we we don't know what what how it's going to be used, how it can be weaponized, or how people can misconstrue it, right? Because a lot of people aren't reading peer reviewed articles; they're reading a blog article or a newscast based on an article, which is on one person's interpretation of it, right? Nobody's really looking at mm, what were the limitations? Were they including me? Who was being included in this, and how can this be? "Quote unquote reliable and valid," as so many people want to talk about in research. No, I'm with you. I think one of the big things, especially in research, and I, I come from a, a science background myself, mm. is is I think there's not enough that out there about what are the real limits sure. um, of of whatever it is you're you're talking about or the research. And I think, let's say, relatively speaking, I think the scientists mm. within themselves mm-hmm. do try to do as good a job as they can. But let's say, as absolutely you get more and more degrees separated from them, right? You, let's say. Some some news outlet 
reads a scientific study that maybe a blogger reads the the right. news story like as you get more and more degrees separated from the the original source mm-hmm. usually i think the limitations of of oh this should only apply under these circumstances usually right. that's what let's say that's what gets pushed aside right is mm-hmm. those are the tens we th- ten things we tend to leave out and, and all of a sudden we think oh this this kind of applies to many many different scenarios when when it actually was only supposed to apply to a very specific set of circumstances right for sure. Uh, so I think I think that's why it's so important that as sex and sexuality is so interdisciplinary that we speak to thought leadership and folks doing the work in these different disciplines and like come together and collaborate in ways that inform one another instead of being vastly different because we're in this silo of, you know, this institution while folks on the ground are doing things that maybe we might not even get into until 10 years later if we have funding or if we have access to be able to do the kind of research that exists. So like not uh, this is better than this or like critiquing of that, but it's that the system itself doesn't really allow for that form and function to be able to say, these are the gaps that exist. Um, Can we look into these and research these further for the betterment of wellness and not always necessarily connected to, well, I don't think this is going to be marketable, right? And things will change, right? Time has shifted. We are getting more into sex tech and toys that are touching on way more functions than pleasure, although pleasure is a super important part, but it's also like, what does accessibility look like? What does long distance, you know, what opportunities are afforded to us uh, if we have access to them to be able to connect uh, sexually or otherwise with the people that we are wanting to be sexual or intimate with. I want to touch on one last thing that kind mm-hmm. of you mentioned at the beginning before we we move on and kind of get our reactions to some of the first episodes. You sure. mentioned that you're working with kind of marginalized groups around sexuality. I'm kind of curious, kind of twofold. One, mm-hmm. what made you decide to work and kind of focus on that group of people? And yeah. second, kind of what are, let's say, some of the specific problems that that group of people or challenges that that group of people face in, in terms of either sex, sexuality, or information around sex, sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I want to touch on it kind of in, in the last part of, of learning about you uh, a little bit yeah. more about that. Well, to me, aside from I am those kind of people, right, living on those intersections of identities, right? So very much me search, but it's also that there was a lack, right? So even when I was choosing to pursue a dissertation and I was um, and my dissertation topic was on like sexuality educators of color. And I was reaching out to sexologists or people who have written about sexology or the, the field, right? Or the business of it. And the, you know, there was a dearth of research as is. And then when I spoke to people, they were like, oh, well, we had, um, I would ask like, what was the demographics? Do you have any other information you'd like to share around that? Cause I'm curious if it can align with my work. And it's very, oh, we have a very homogeneous group, right? And that was language for, you know, we don't really talk about that if the if the participants are one particular sexual orientation or one particular gender. Um, and we're not explicitly speaking on that, that that could uh, leave things out. So instead of not talking about the demographics, we're just gonna assume that this is the default But then when we have a particular identity that's seen as the default, who gets left out of that conversation? 
right? And why aren't we having conversations about uh, multiple ways in, uh, of being so that folks can feel like I can read this research or that re this research would apply to me or has factored things in my life that may have placed an impact, right? Because our sex and our sexual health and our overall health isn't just what we feed ourselves or how we move our bodies or who we interact with in a physical sense, but it's also the things that impact us structurally, right? The things that, you know, we talk about stressors, but we also need to talk about the stressors that exist from living in particular parts of society where, of course, sex and sexuality might not be the main thing on your agenda right now because you're focused on other social determinants of health, right? Like other factors of housing or education or stress or like I'm I'm fascinated of I'm looking forward to the research that's going to show up of how sexual desire sexual functioning folks overall wellness overall has been impacted by the pandemic or by other things that have existed outside of the quote-unquote sexuality space but still play a huge impact right because they inform one another Right, the conservative views of the United States is what informs the people who are in power to even have policies in place where they're trying to take away rights that have existed. And to me, that's connected to sex and sexual wellness too, even if it's not necessarily discussing a sexual behavior or orgasm, for example. Perfect. I think that's a good a good thing before we like shift to the other part of this episode. Mm. Um, so yeah, you had a chance to to listen to the first three parts uh, of this mini series on on kind of entrepreneurship and innovating in the the sexual space. Um, I think I just want to start with kind of your reaction and, and I'd say what was let's say the the biggest thing that that kind of you learned and that you you want people to kind of I don't know focus on or, or a biggest takeaway that kind of you had. It was like hey, people pay attention to this. Yes, I think two, I'll, I'll start with one. One of the main things that popped out for me, and again, this is out of my lens of living in the States, of being in the field since, you know, formally since 2008, it's how difficult it is to get this research off, how difficult it is to be connected to certain institutions that benefit from your research in a particular way, uh, but then are not 100% backing you in other aspects and not either because they don't want to because of their culture, like their academic institutions, culture, or the fact that there are other people in place that will make it difficult, right? And I saw that on, on both sides. So when you spoke to uh, Dr. Prouse, I believe her name was, right? And how difficult it was to the point that she has, an, um, from what I'm seeing, right? An amazing opportunity to do research at UCLA and still has to have a business, which I'm here for, I'm an entrepreneur, shout out to the entrepreneurs, to, to do the research that she wants to do because there's so much uh, hindering that, right? So she has the function to be able to have that business on her own, but there's still difficulty despite the fact that we are seeing that there's so much work, uh, so much goodness that could be created and collected based on what's going on right now. And when I flip it to the other scenario, when we talk to the young folks that are doing the work around creating their own sex tech, right? When we talk about um, Ksenia and Sarah and how they literally were speaking to people who are quote unquote experts in the field, right? And they, they are, I'm sure they are in their own right. 
and they were getting stopped by their own viewpoints and their own biases around them being open to the notion of these folks going into sex tech, right? So to show that there is this wonderful field of sex that can go into sexuality research, to technology, to social emotional learning, and yet still you, there are opportunities for these roadblocks to exist even within the space, let alone seeking investors outside the space that may not be familiar with the work that you're doing or the um, sexuality in general. How uh, On that, I imagine this probably overlaps with your work quite a bit. How would you recommend someone either break through these barriers, get around these barriers, um, how, how do you deal with spaces like this where, where you're kind of constantly facing kind of pushback or or, or people telling you no? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm I'm here for the last couple of episodes that I listened to in that that didn't deter them, right? They saw an obstacle, they had the means, and they said, LLC, or let's ask other people, or let's find other folks, right? Similar to what you were saying, what does it look like to find your people, right? What does it look like to speak to uh, a particular demographic that you're seeking, whether it's funding, whether, you know, whoever, and f and not come from a place of having to convince, which is interesting because that's what you're taught to do when you're pitching, right? It's coming to a place of convincing, but you finding folks that are in alignment where the convincing isn't from a place of this is why this is important. It's this is why my prototype will function. This is why we're gearing it towards this, you know, towards this research, right? Necessarily, if there are folks who still think sex is taboo or the way sex toys are, you know, there are still people that uh, condemn sex toys for different reasons, even within the field. So again, it's continuing to find people. And my biggest thing that I always tell folks, including my, my budding sexuality professionals, is collaboration and community is so important. At least in my experience, a lot of that is where I, I think sexuality is so connected is because I have been in the reproductive spaces, the racial justice spaces, the sex ed spaces, the sex research spaces. And I've seen amazing work, but I've also seen proof that Folks are not talking to one another. Either you're not talking to the people you want to connect with or you haven't had access to that. So I that's why I love to be a connector to those folks, right? I immediately was listening to the episodes and I'm like, oh my God, what would it look like to connect them to some other folks? Maybe some sex researchers here that are connected to sex tech or people that have already funded sex tech that are in the States, for example. What would it look like to have uh, a collaborative impact there or if they needed somebody if they couldn't find anybody in the medical sense where they were what would it look like to find somebody who does sex research or focuses on uh pelvic floor health here that can bring some insight to either the research happening um in the case of liberals and then for the sex tech that's being created through this program i think that's one of the things that that i think about a lot and and i think it's it's a, a mix of almost let's say find your tribe find your choir if that makes mm -hmm. if that makes mm -hmm. sense um and i think one of the things that i think about have almost circling back to a little bit of an earlier conversation we had around the internet is i think let's say compared to let's say when you were looking into this i think it's way easier to let's say find your tribe find your choir now mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. the internet than it was pre-internet to the point where I, I would almost 
argue that let's say the, the little tribes and communities and, and, and whatnot are almost like their own little cyber countries or mm. like minimally cyber cities, but, but they're almost like their own little cyber country in the, the way we used to think about countries, right? You could almost mm. be, let's say, uh, I'm trying to think of what the, the right term, but let's say a good part of the sex friendly tribe in the same way you used to be able to be like French or something mm. like that, right? And, and, and that you might have more in common with your sex friendly tribe and those people might be anywhere in the world. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that let's say that people who are living are from France had a similar connection to being French. Um, right. And I think that the internet has allowed these types of, um, let's say, um, I just blanked on the word I wanted to use, but but self-identifying communities mm-hmm. pop up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you kind of decide that, oh, I'm, I feel like I, I associate with this group of people. And then it just becomes sort of a matter of, of you were saying, oh, you have to convince someone. It's, it's not really, oh, you have to sell them what you're doing. You, it's actually more of, oh, I actually just have to convince you that, that we're part of the same tribe, right. choir, whatever. And that's kind collective, of- Collective, yeah. Collective. Yeah. And that's, a, that's a much different conversation, but also to a certain extent, it's like assuming that you're being genuine, mm-hmm. I would argue that that's a much easier conversation if, of, of, of just a matter of, oh, I'm trying to convince you that that we are genuinely part of the same collective group of people. Yeah. And assuming you're being transparent and genuine, then that's usually not that difficult of a a thing to convince someone of. Right, Um, right. And to me, it's coming from a place of like authenticity and sometimes vulnerability, right? Because it's outside of your silo, right? It's up outside of your niche. But I'm like, that to me is where the synergy happens. When we connect with other folks, right? Outside of maybe our degree or whatever our pay grade is thought to be, the knowledge is everywhere, right? It's how how are we valuing this knowledge? How are we connecting with folks? How are we skill building not only in our abilities to do research, our abilities to do entrepreneurship, but also our abilities to build relationships that are sustainable, that are collaborative, that are not necessarily... Um, I mean, transactional, there's a good and bad to that, but it's, it, it isn't one-sided, right? There's a way that we can all build. There's a way that we don't need to be in competition with one another um, or try to value ourselves at a higher or lower level, depending on like, oh, you got a degree from here or you do research from here. Uh, because sometimes those pedestals aren't necessarily sustainable for the folks that are propped up on them, right? Because there is a lot of open opportunity for us to learn from one another regardless of that and I think that's what I love about uh, the classroom and setting up shop and communing with folks is that opportunity that like I don't come from a place when I teach or when I even do uh, consulting work that I'm the the thought leader right I can stand in my expertise And I know that together is where we come up with that magic. Together is where we're able to uh, bring our lived experiences and our expertise from different avenues to be able to bring it at the forefront of sex and sexuality. Most of the folks that I know doing the magical work, they did it because they had to do it on their own because there was nothing that really reflected them and or very minimal that supported that. Right now it's getting a little bit, I say people are getting more empowered but the access in terms of capital, in terms of re, like funding, and in terms of people, in terms of policy, that's still feeling like um, dismal, right? Feeling like a roadblock. 
So how do we stay connected and keep the momentum going? Because there's always, at least in my experience, there's always going to be an iteration of a pushback unless somewhere the powers that be find it uh, monetizable, something that, that to, to be commodified. Um, give or take. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there's two kind of in interesting points here. I think on one side, I think I'm seeing something that I would agree with you on one side, but on the mm -hmm. other side, I think we're also starting to see, um, and a lot of this is coming out of like the the blockchain uh, crypto communities. Sure. There's, and it, I mean, but it was even starting before that where you're starting to see like crowdfunding and, and there are all these aspects to, let's say, new and simpler ways mm. for community funded or when I say community, I'm just talking about whatever, a collective group yeah, yeah. To, to fund different initiatives. And I think mm -hmm. we're, technology and let's say having community funded initiatives has been advancing quite a bit. Mm -hmm. and, and I think as that develops, I think you're going to see almost, almost a secondary, like a parallel economy mm. of sort of things funded the traditional way and things funded by the community of people who essentially believe those things are valuable. Right. Um, so I, I think that's one thing that's 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 quite interesting, and I just there's one other thing I wanted to to mention, and I just blanked on what it was. Um, no, whatever. I, I'll, I'll let that It'll one come go. back. It'll, It'll come, come back, back to me. Um, but no, but I, I think that's that's quite quite interesting. Right there is is that I, I think that is changing. You're starting to see kind of parallel economies happen, mm -hmm. and and I think that's one thing that that's that's quite quite interesting. Oh, I, I think it, I think it was this though. It's, it's the other thing that I want to touch on that that you mentioned is is what, what I think is quite interesting is is that at least uh, I, I'm not sure if you're you're a fan of his, but uh, Professor Harari talks about uh, Johann Harari has *Sapiens* mm. and *Homo Deus*. One of the big things he talks about of of like what makes human beings kind of unique and what has led us to be able to be kind of the top, or at least from our point of view, the top of of kind of the food chain in, in the world mm. um, is is very much connected to our ability to collaborate and be collectives and, 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 and work with each other. And, and that's what kind of essentially has led to all the greatest things humanity has ever done. I mean, yeah, that is, that is an interesting point. And there's also been instances where it feels like there's, there's, there's push around that. And I don't know. I mean, I feel like I will go down a rabbit hill because those are my, my favorite things to do. Um, but I also think about that. I think that's why the key point of me talking about collaboration uh, versus competition and competition can be, you know, there's not a binary around competition either, but yes, we're able to be in communities. Yes, we're able to build and be innovative in those ways. And there's ways for us to do that without um, either disregarding the knowledge that was retained from another community and brought into this space or disregard that other people are gonna be doing similar things, right? Like there are creative things that happen. There's hundreds of types of sex toys. There's hundreds of types of sexuality professionals and we all have these different nuances and uh, interests. And yet I still, you know, going back to the collaboration piece, I think it's, it is a beautiful thing if, um, humans are open-minded and thinking critically and able to um, collaborate without um, things getting in their way, either roadblocks of 
funding, but also egos and other things that can show up because, you know, that's a great thing about humans. And also humans also have these other wonderful things about them that sometimes we need to uh, navigate and be held accountable for too. Perfect. Cindy, I think that's kind of a, a great place to kind of wrap stuff up. Any final words before we, we, we sign off? Uh, yes, I am super excited to what is coming along with the future of sex and sex technology and sex entrepreneurship. Um, I'm super open to looking at what that exists and how we can collaborate to make this world a place that is sustainable and responsible and able to live lives that are uh, multifaceted without uh, sacrificing our pleasure and our abilities to, to feel good and connect with one another. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ESI What's Next podcast. ESI is a program aimed at fostering socially responsible, environmentally sustainable student innovation through education and new venture creation. We're grateful to the European Regional Development Fund, Printify, SCB Bank, and Remy for their support. Tune in next week to find out what's next in the world of student entrepreneurship.